All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the calls for mandatory masks and vaccinations at UBC. Yesterday, the UBC Faculty Association president sent a letter to the president of the university calling for a mask mandate, make face masks mandatory in all indoor public spaces on campus. And this is the big one, mandatory COVID vaccinations for all UBC students and staff. The pressure rising on the university administration here. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Sylvia Fuller, professor in the Department of Sociology at UBC, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Professor Fuller, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Okay, Professor Fuller, I noticed on, on Twitter yesterday you congratulated the UBC Faculty Association for their leadership here, so you're applauding them and their moves. Can you tell me your concerns here? Well, my concerns are that the plan that we have in place for UBC is essentially no plan. It's based on the assumption that we can just go back uh, to a state of normalcy that the current situation just doesn't merit. So UBC... Universities in general, these are a context where we have lots of people together in indoor spaces, crowded indoor spaces for prolonged periods of time. And so these are situations where uh, we know that are the most risky with respect to the virus uh, being transmitted. And yet we have no protections around requiring masks. We have no protections around requiring uh, vaccinations. And this makes it incredibly risky for everybody, but especially for people who are at higher risk of being uh, seriously harmed if they contract COVID-19 and for whom vaccinations uh, aren't as effective. And there are substantial numbers of our campus community who are in that group. So I'm really concerned that we are putting people at risk, especially vulnerable people. Okay, what do you think of the response from the university administration on this so far? You mentioned that there doesn't seem to be a plan, and the letter from the UBC Faculty Association president yesterday uh, pointed out that there hasn't been a public risk analysis uh, done for the university campuses, especially in the face of these rising uh, case counts of this this Delta variant. Do you you think the university has just sort of failed to respond to this right now? So I think the university administrators, to be fair, are in a difficult position. So they're clearly under pressure not to impose stricter measures than the public health office is advising. And so far, the public health office is uh, advising us essentially to do nothing. So I I do feel for them. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, our president and other administrators are are genuinely concerned with the well-being of the campus community. But... I do think that UBC can take more robust measures to protect the health of the community than they are doing. Uh, we did it before in implementing an indoor mask mandate at UBC before this was required. And I really do think that our leadership needs to step up and go beyond and push back because their responsibility ultimately is to the campus community to create a situation where folks are able to participate um, in the campus community and not be uh, have that condition of participation be at severe risk to their health, especially, again, for those who are most vulnerable. Right. Speaking to UBC Professor Sylvia Fuller, you mentioned that the university appears to be under pressure here not to bring in tougher restrictions. Where is that pressure coming from, do you think? So that pressure is coming from the Ministry of Advanced Education, I assume, uh, who sent a mandate letter to UBC uh, previously, basically 
exhorting them not to go beyond what the public health office is, um, you know, is requiring for their basic minimum standards. Now, I don't know. I'm not party to those conversations. What exactly is going on? Um, I know that the Association of Administrative and Professional Staff at UBC has filed freedom of information request to uh, to see that correspondence. Um, But certainly I think that this is this is pressure that is coming from um, from the government, from what we can see. But UBC also has the ability to push back. Uh, and I do think that they are able to push back and that they should be going further than uh, than what they are. And, you know, I want to say, too, here that, yeah. you know, it's one thing for me to, to um, it's one thing for me to speak out because I am in a relatively safe position at UBC. I am a tenured professor. You know, I'm far enough along in my career that I'm not particularly worried about speaking out and I'm not as worried about you know, possibly having to have, um, you know, special accommodations for my own circumstances, because I, I live with someone who's highly immunocompromised. So if I get a breakthrough infection from, uh, you know, somebody who's not uh, vaccinated or not vaccinated and has COVID and spreads it around, I can kill my partner. I, so that's a really scary situation for me to be in. But I can advocate for that. But there's lots of folks who are in more precarious positions at UBC, special instructors, people on temporary contracts, who may not feel that they can even speak up. So I think that we really need to have that responsibility uh, for everybody on campus and really especially for the people who just cannot safely and effectively be part of campus life without stronger protection. Last question for you, Professor. There's uh, there's a debate around these issues all across the country and really all, all around the world in, in many cases on, on how far to go with these sort of vaccine mas- mandates and vaccine passports and what rules should be should be brought in. And it often gets down to a, a civil liberties argument, like how far should it, a university administration or a government go in saying to people, you must get this vaccine, you must put this vaccine into your body. Like, what do you think of that argument that people should... It's just going too far on people's personal liberties and freedoms. So people can make the choice to not get vaccinated. That is their choice. And certainly I think that they should have that freedom to make that choice for themselves. But they don't, that doesn't entitle them to have free access uh, to spread to not having the consequences of, of that choice. I'm sorry, I'm not putting this very well, but Your choice to not get vaccinated puts other people at risk. And when that's the situation, you should not have that freedom to not get vaccinated override your responsibility to the broader community. You don't want to get vaccinated. That's fine. That's your choice. But that doesn't mean that you have the right to come on campus and put other people at risk. Okay, we'll see where it goes. For sure, the pressure is rising here. Thanks a lot for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue discussing the calls for mandatory masks and vaccinations on the campus at UBC. The pressure rising on the university administration here. It'll be it's interesting to look at the trend here at other universities and colleges, especially south of the border in the United States, where hundreds of colleges and universities there have brought in mandatory vaccination rules. In Canada, we've seen a, a much smaller number uh, go in this direction, notably Seneca College in Toronto is the first post-secondary institution in our country to bring in a mandatory vaccination rule. Could UBC do the same? The pressure is certainly rising here. You've got the Faculty Association at the university yesterday issuing a public letter 
to the university president calling for mandatory masks, mandatory vaccinations on campus. Phone me on it. Tell me what you think. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898. Toll free on your cell. The list of groups that are calling for this at UBC getting longer. You got the faculty association yesterday. Earlier, we had the students union at UBC also calling for mandatory masks, mandatory vaccines for students and residents. Also, the union representing university staff had been calling for stricter safety measures at the university in advance of students returning to in-person classes this fall. The pressure rising for sure. Uh, do we have Annabree? We do. Okay, my next guest is Annabree Fairweather, Executive Director of the Confederation of University Faculty Associations of BC. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for coming on. What are your thoughts on this right now? I think our biggest emphasis is that institutions have the autonomy to make these decisions and they ought to be allowed to implement measures that are in addition to what the Provincial Health Office has implemented or dictated for September 7th start of, of semesters. Yeah, and your association, you, you filed a Freedom of Information request, right, because you're looking for more you want some sort of what a guarantee that the university can do this. They can go beyond the minimum safety standards that's been mandated by the province. We correct? have asked the minister to affirm that institutions have the autonomy, and they do under the acts that govern them, and they are autonomous from government. Institutions are through their boards of governors. But one of the hardest things is being behind the scenes. There have been directives given to the institutions not to implement measures that go above what is uh, going to be in place for us as a province on September Why? 7th. Wow. Why would they do that? We're not entirely sure. We see this being done in other jurisdictions outside of the province where, say, in residence they have that. And we also see from Dr. Bonnie Henry's presentations in public forums on this that institutions are encouraged to have the proof of immunizations for students and residents, as well as to implement those rules for a safe workplace. But for some reason, the, from within the ministry, those, those directions are, are going um, in contradiction to what Dr. Bonnie Henry has even said. Wow, okay, that's, that's interesting. Do you think there should be mandatory vaccines on campus? I think that the institutions are, and the faculty and staff and students in consultation with each other are probably the best ones to determine that. But it might not be a one-size-fits-all across the province. Uh, I think in concentrated areas where we see the Delta variant on the rise in certain areas within Fraser Health or in mainland or in the interior, but maybe perhaps not up north. So that might be something that's a local decision of the faculty, staff, and students, especially through the joint worksite health and safety committees that are legislatively created bodies on campuses. Those have not been consulted on these processes, and we don't know why that's the case. Okay, pressure rising on the university and the province here for sure. Thanks a lot for coming on. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Anna Bree Fairweather there, Confederation of University Faculty Associations. Let's go to your phone calls and see what you think about it. Michael on the line in Coquitlam. Hi, Michael. What do you think? Hi. Well, universities already have a bunch of admissions requirements. I say if you've fallen for the hucksters selling you anti-vaccine hysteria and you don't get a vaccine, you failed the test. You're not smart <laughs> enough to be a part of the academic, com the academic community. Okay, so you think go ahead and bring in the mandatory rule? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Why not? Okay, Michael, thanks for the call. Susan in Vancouver. Hi, Susan. What do you think? Hi there. Hi. What do you think? 
Uh, so I am a 20-year staff member, 20-plus year staff member at the university, and I just want to applaud the Faculty Association for sending that letter because the plan has been extremely vague to yeah. faculty, staff, and students on campus. Um, I don't feel that it's been well communicated. We are ready to open our doors in September. It is a scary thought uh, with no proper plan. Um, I do support a mask mandatory. I work in one of the most public places on campus, one of the most popular places on campus, and um, it's uncomfortable, people not coming in with masks. My concern is the vaccine, um, because there are um, people who medically can't take a vaccine, there are right. a multiple of reasons of why people can't. That's where I'm a little bit itchy. But I still think that masks, and if you can't take the vaccine or you're making that choice, stick to your bubble, stick to your COVID rules that you've had in April, and wear a mask. Okay, Susan, thank you for the call. The, the Faculty Association calling for that mandatory vaccine, but with legal exemptions. So if medically you can't take the vaccine there would be exemptions available for people dan in vancouver hi dan hi um i just want to say that a lot of people are talking about the rights of people and you do have the right to make the choice yeah. but there's also the responsibility of like the venue whether it's a university or orca bay or a restaurant i think they have the responsibility to provide a safe place um it could be, even be a workplace and if uh, somebody wants to come and spread it around because you've made that choice, then too bad. Go somewhere we've, else. We've certainly seen that trend. Thank you for the call. We've seen private companies bring in rules like this. We've seen universities and colleges do it to a limited degree in Canada. Uh, it'll probably get tested in front of the courts, but there, there's a growing body of law that in the face of uh, a pandemic and a health emergency, that institu individual institutions and organizations can can bring in rules like this. We'll see. Mel in Vancouver. Hi, Mel. What do you think? I actually have worked at UBC for 17 plus years now. And the one thing I have noticed, and this has nothing to do with UBC, but just in general, is the pure pressure, the volume of pure pressure of unrealistic expectations when people are living in fear. And when you live in fear, you don't think properly. The thought process is very limited because of the heightened fear. UBC, I'm under the student, student portfolio, so I deal exclusively with students. And UBC has been on top of things, has been respectful in my work environment. Even though masks are recommended, we still all wear masks. We have the hand sanitizer. In the end, it's people's decision whether they choose to take the vax or not. This is still considered in clinical trials till 2023. So in reality, it's still open for negotiations on whether you want to take it or not. Making rash decisions and not feeling comfortable with the outcome, there's no turning back once you've taken it. So you can't put pressure on students when they already have the pressure of attending university and the extreme volume of stress that they're going to be enduring. And to okay. throw this on top of them is unrealistic. Okay, Mel, thanks for the call. Appreciate you calling in. We have both sides of it there. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the latest bombshell report out yesterday from the International Panel on Climate Change. Now, hundreds of scientists involved in this United Nations report, thousands of studies 
the conclusion, climate change is real. It's caused by human activity, notably the burning of fossil fuels, and it's getting worse. I've got former Green Party leader Andrew Weaver standing by. He's a former lead author with this panel. But first, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Aaron MacArthur. From forest fires to heat waves, even flooding, extreme weather isn't hypothetical anymore. Climate change is here, and humans are responsible. Basically, the path we're on now is one that threatens all of the systems that sustain us. For the first time, scientists from around the world have spoken in plain language. The Earth is hotter now than at any time in the last 125,000 years. Since the Industrial Revolution, the planet's mean temperature has increased 1.1 degrees Celsius. And without drastic action across the globe, it's only going to get hotter. Scientists predict another 1.5 degrees in the coming decades. Our future and the severity of the climate crisis that we're seeing is not a matter of chance. Our future especially will be determined by the choices we make now. Okay, that report from Global News. Let's discuss now with my guest, Andrew Weaver. He's the former leader of the B.C. Green Party, and I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Andrew, thanks a lot for coming on. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Andrew, you were formerly involved with the uh, the IPCC, of course, uh, former lead author, researcher there, uh, part of the panel that won the Nobel Prize. Like, how many? When did you get first get involved with that panel? Oh, well, I guess I started writing the um, getting involved writing the second assessment in the early 1990s. Uh, so, 19, I, I was a lead author in the uh, second assessment, the third assessment, the fourth assessment, and the fifth assessment, which was published in 2013. Uh, so basically my entire career I've been uh, working in that uh, in the field of climate and being involved in the IPCC. Not this last one, for obvious reasons. I was in the legislature. Right. What did you think of this latest report? Honestly, um, one of the reasons why I uh, left, in some sense, I'm back now, uh, in the climate science, um, working in that area uh, to try to get into uh, facilitate policy change in BC was precisely because year after year we're putting out these reports they're, they're basically saying each one says the pre what the ever the thing said in the previous one with greater certainty so the way i like to summarize it it's just more of the same with greater certainty i mean i guess these are important every now and again but the reality is um you know if we don't need another report to tell us what the problem is what we need is public policy uh, to deal with it if as a society we choose to so um I, I certainly hope we do. Uh, there are you know, positive indications that we are in some jurisdictions, uh, nationally and in BC. And uh, let's just hope that we continue that path. Okay, what would you say to people who say that we every time these reports come out, it's, it's sort of this, the same warning to the world, but as you mentioned, it's been going on for like over 20 years with your involvement in it. So at some point, it seems like every every report that comes out says, the clock is ticking, we're, we're reaching a tipping point, but we've been hearing these reports from for 20 years. I mean, is it too late to do something about it? Well, no, because it, it's never too late, uh, late to do something. I mean, uh, the, the direction we're he heading is, is, is actually, frankly, pretty, pretty um, disturbing. However, uh, there is time to turn the corner. Uh, this is why I'm hoping the words like the new normal are just taken away and stop being used because there's nothing normal about a transition of a climate where it's changing at a rate far greater than humans have experienced and the time scale of a few decades. So there's, there's no normal yet. We're still warming. So um, 
but if, you know, we need the public policy. We need people to put this as a ballot box issue, an important one, to, if we collectively are going to come and together and deal with this. Because it, it's going to get a lot worse, way worse. Right. When you take a look, when you take a look at the global demand for fossil fuels, though, I mean, how how easy or difficult is it to to turn that back? I mean, you can't just turn the switch off, right? I mean, how quickly can this be turned around realistically? Uh, it can. I mean, the issue is not turning the switch around. The issue is saying, okay, if we're going to build new infrastructure, new infrastructure will be will be non-emitting. Uh, you know, you don't build a natural gas plant today with the, with the notion of tearing it down tomorrow. What you shouldn't, we should simply not be constructing new fossil fuel infrastructure because doing so is entirely inconsistent with the actual agreements that international policymakers have made with respect to trying to keep warming below two degrees. Because, as I say, you build new stuff, it lasts for for a long time. Fortunately, things like LNG Canada, I, I'll say it again, Mike, I've been saying it since 2012, don't think it's ever going to get built because there's no market for these, uh, some, uh, you know, these expensive uh, fossil fuel projects. And um, if we don't continue to change our ways, we'll be left producing a product that nobody wants. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is developing innovation that everyone wants. Speaking to former Green Party leader Andrew Weaver, he's a former lead author, author with the United Nations International Panel on climate change and talking about the report that came out yesterday when you take a look at some of the report's findings and and recommendations for going forward it talks about some some short-term goals to reduce uh, carbon emissions uh, and fossil fuel emissions notably from methane which they say is one of the one of the worst uh, worst emitters what could we do to reduce methane emissions in the short term there's there's a number of of places where methane comes from in bc of course um we we, are, we have enormous uh, release of methane through hydraulic fracking up in the north, and the what's called the fugitive emissions associated with that. Both uh, methane leaks uh, everywhere is another another big issue. Uh, in terms of um, agricultural products, you can actually uh, turn uh, agricultural waste into uh, what's called renewable methane. So so there are means and ways of actually harvesting agricultural methane and as well as landfill methane as well. So. It's right. Meth- methane released to the atmosphere, one could view as unburnt energy. Uh, methane, that is, would otherwise just be used for something else. Okay, there's a lot of activists uh, calling for uh, drastic action in the wake of this report yesterday uh, to stop the fossil fuel industry from expanding within the next few years, maybe with uh, heavy carbon taxes. Do you think that's the way to go with car- carbon taxes? Well, I don't think it's only activists calling for this, Mike. I think it's yeah. like, if I, if when I was looking at Greta Thunberg, I was thinking like there's an entire movement globally saying, hang on, this is our future, and we'd like you to remember that when you're making your decisions today, and not only think about how you can get reelected in four years by, by doing something really kitschy that's, that's uh, great politics, but poor public policy, and we don't need, there's lots of examples of that around in BC. So, so, so um, you know, I, 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 I do think that people, there is the pressure there. I do think that um, Rogers will have to listen. And I, and I think what we've done, uh, it, you've seen that change in Canada most recently. And I'll say that, you know, since December 2020 was when the federal government finally put out a climate plan that was substantive and actually, I would say, innovative and leading. Um, but it's taken, like, I mean, again, 
We were talking about the Kyoto Protocol back in the 1990s, of which you know nobody remembers, yeah. but in fact the globe the globe did meet its targets there. No thanks to Canada, but thanks to a place like England. So we can do stuff. People want to do stuff. So let's do stuff. And in doing doing that, we actually uh, facilitate innovation and and uh, prosperity. Okay. Speaking of. Um Greta Thunberg, I got a short uh, clip here of her reacting to this report yesterday. Let's have a listen and then get your, your thoughts. Greta Thunberg here. This report doesn't tell us what to do. It doesn't say you have to do this and then you have to do this. It doesn't provide us with s- such solutions or tell us that you need to do this. And that's up for us. We are the ones who need to take to take the decisions. And we are the ones who need to be brave and ask the, the difficult questions. Your thoughts, Andrew Weaver? Well, it, it's not quite fair to say that these, this report doesn't provide the solutions because, as you know, that the, the um, IPCC reports come out. There's three massive volumes that come out. This is the first one, which is basically talking about the underlying science. The next one will come out with basically impacts and adaptation, how the how climate change will affect us or is affecting mm-hmm. us and what we can do to adapt. And the third one is the solutions one, the policy options, the solutions, discussing energy alternatives. That's where you're going to get a lot of the solutions focus. So, but, but you're right. I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, this is things that, uh, you know, I know very well from politics. Uh, like Site C, the classic example. It's not a ballot box question. You know, people have been really upset about Site C. But when push comes to shove, it's actually not a ballot box question. Climate change needs to be a ballot box question. All parties have good people who can advocate within their caucuses for it. And to me, until such time, it is a, it is a ballot box question. We're not going to deal you, with it as well in our first past post systems. How do you respond to the argument that uh, climate? Okay, you have people say climate change is real. I'm not a climate change denier, but I do think there is alarmism. It's too late to stop it. We can mitigate it instead. Uh, Bjorn Lomborg, have you heard of this guy, Bjorn Lomborg? Yeah, he's an he's an economist. So I, I yeah. don't really get get into like getting into discussing climate science with an economist. But okay, what's he going to say? Well, okay. Well, he he's a guy. He, he was a guest here on the show last spring, and I'll play a clip here for you from him. Now, this is the guy who caused a sensation at one point with a book called "The Skeptical Environmentalist." He says he's not a climate change denier. He accepts that human beings are causing climate change, but that we should learn to mitigate it and the strategies that are being proposed to combat it are disastrous for the economy. But let me play a clip here for you from, from him, Bjorn Lomberg from an earlier appearance on the show here. Here he is talking about uh, carbon taxes, and I'll get your thoughts. A yeah. realistic carbon tax will only solve a smaller part of the problem of global warming. So it's one part of the solution, but it's not the main part, and it's very easy to screw up. Okay, so he says carbon taxes are easy to easy to screw up. He also calls for reducing the price of green energy, and he makes this argument, and i get your thoughts, Bjorn Lomborg here. But if we could innovate the price of green energy down below fossil fuels, everyone would switch, not just people in, in Canada and nice, well-meaning people across the Western world, but also the people in China and in India and Africa and Latin America, everywhere else. Okay, so he says, forget about bringing in punitive taxes. Let's try to innovate to come up with more efficient energy sources. But your thoughts? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I discredit what Bjorn Lomberg has to say based on um, seeing him essentially uh, spend the last uh, several decades uh, trying to um, stop climate policy from coming in. And I, I find that uh, not really, um, you know, cricket so to speak so in light of that high caveat that uh of that i will say that um 
it is true that carbon pricing is one of, of many uh, policy measures. It's a critical policy measure, though. And why is because until you recognize that there's a cost of your doing business uh, for polluting, you're not going to change. Uh, you know, there's a reason why we have environmental recycling fees on oil, uh, for a car on on fluorescent bulbs and things like that, we we try to ensure that there, we internalize the cost of our doing business. When we buy something and we throw it away, there's a cost to that. For whatever reason, we believe that the atmosphere can be viewed as an unregulated trash can that we can put anything we want in at no cost. So carbon pricing is a critical uh, measure, but it's one of many. Okay. Uh, for example, there are regulatory measures that could be put in place. For, we In B.C., we have the zero emission vehicle mandate, which for B.C. Right. is a huge policy because 40% of our emissions come from the transportation sector. So, so yes, but, I mean, in terms of hurting the economy, uh, really, uh, it actually is more expensive in most parts of the world to build a fossil fuel plant, even with today's prices, because they are subsidized. Look at LNG Canada. Do you even think LNG Canada would be even talking about um, I still say it's not going to be built, get built, but talking about building an LNG facility in BC, if it were not for the egregious subsidies. Right. So, so I mean, this is just, I, I, to Mr. Bjornberg, I say do your homework for Canada because it's not, it's not correct. Okay. All right. Welcome back. We're talking about the UN climate change report out yesterday with my guest, Andrew Weaver, taking your phone calls. Let's go right to your calls here. Steve on the line in Surrey. Hi, Steve. Hi, gentlemen. Excellent uh, session, Mike. Um, Same to you, Mr. Weaver. Um, I'll ask a really key question in a second, but my thing is, I remember a couple of years ago when they said, you know, we had like 12 years or so to do something or else our climate's going to be kind of done. And I equate the question, if your doctor told you you had 12 years to live and you don't make changes, you're going to make those changes. So here's my question. With COVID kind of hopefully ending soon, knock on wood, we're going to see an unprecedented amount of people that are going to be flying, going on trips. Everybody talks about yeah. it. Speak to this issue about really speaking, people being hypocrites. If they're going to go fly on trips where the emissions are destroying the climate, but on the other hand, they're saying we have to do something now. I think that's not talked about. I'd love to hear your perspective, Mr. Weaver and, and uh, Michael. Thank you. Okay, Andrew Weaver, your thoughts. I, um, it's a good point. Oh, sorry. One of the things that's quite interesting uh, is that this uh, IPCC assessment was largely done virtually um, in the last little while because of COVID. I, I, I tend to think that there's a lot of people in the climate science community who have to take a good hard look at themselves, too. Um, you know, you can be doing what you want, and then you're driving to work in your eight-cylinder uh, SUV and then zooming around the world, um, going to meetings and conferences. So, so yeah. you know, leadership is important. And uh, so I, I'm hoping that we'll see, as emerging from COVID, uh, far less reliance on the international travel for such events. And, and but Colour is right. The, the thing, too, is, though, of course, that, that 12 years comment from earlier, uh, that was with specific uh, attempts to try to keep warming below one and a half degrees. There's no way in a million months of Sundays that we'll keep warming below one and a half degrees, given that we've already warmed by 1.1. And if we immediately stopped burning fossil fuels, uh, we we scrub out of the atmosphere uh, very rapidly the cooling aerosols. So we mump up and we have permafrost. But it's, it's going to be 1.7, 1.8 is where we are in the cards, based on what we've done and the inertia in our social economic system. Okay. So let's let's try to keep it below three. Okay, Andrew, we'll just have to have you back because we have more calls that we simply can't get to at this time. But I appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the backlog at ICBC for getting a road test and to get behind the wheel with a driver's license in British Columbia. I remember way back in the misty depths of time when I was 16 years old, man, I couldn't wait to drive. I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. Day one when I was 16, I was out there getting my license. Man, imagine being told you got to wait months and months and months for a road test. Now, that would be brutal, but that is the situation. And it's not just in British Columbia, but it's also in other provinces across Canada. In Ontario, same deal. During COVID-19 and the pandemic, a lot of those road tests were shut down for safety reasons, creating a huge backlog. Hundreds of thousands of canceled tests there in Ontario. Check out what's going on there now. People are actually paying uh, money here to get a road test in Ontario. Have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Noor Ibrahim. My driver's license expired um, last year. And it's been a waiting game for Delano Anderson ever since. The North York man is one of many scrambling to book a road test amid a provincial backlog of 700,000 drivers. I only looked a couple of times and then after, to be honest, I kind of gave up because I got really discouraged. Then Anderson noticed something online. Early dates for road tests were being sold on Snapchat and Instagram and the Ron Kijiji too. This seller told me I could have a spot very soon for $100 plus tax. And this August 4th date is going for 300 bucks. Great profit for the sellers. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so they're actually scalping road tests in Ontario where there's a huge backlog there because of the pandemic. Got a backlog here in B.C. too. Let's get an update now from my guest, Steve Wallace, owner of Wallace Driving School. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Steve. Hey, good morning, Mike. Okay, what do you think about that in Ontario? They're actually scalping uh, road tests there. Well, it can't happen in British Columbia. I know that Ontario has a different system. Yeah. And so um, they sometimes have what's called a certification process. And so um, as far as the BC example is concerned, um, the structures here would prohibit that. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, the license number, the identification, the whole scenario of things have to happen in order to book a test time. And you can't just sell it or change it or someone else can't show up at the time and that kind of thing. Um, so I, I just don't, uh, I, I just don't think it's going to happen in BC. They, they're pretty sharp in BC too. They got the anti-fraud squad. They got 14 people working on that all the time. So I don't think it's going to happen, but I think what Ontario is going through is what the whole country is going through. And everybody, including myself, uh, didn't see this coming. Uh, people are getting their license to be a better job candidate, as I told you before in an interview a few months ago. And so that's what's really getting them going. And the people who are doing the hiring don't have the same confidence in the high school dogwood as they did before. Everyone seems to pass. So they want to know that you got 40 questions out of 50 right on a learner's license. And that way, it's a pseudo-intelligence test uh, as a gateway into a job. And so what's happening now is People don't feel comfortable on their bikes. They don't feel comfortable walking. They don't feel comfortable riding the bus still because of COVID and so on. They don't feel comfortable in cabs for whatever reason. We're getting this whole scenario back. Some of the stuff is logical. Some of it's totally illogical. Uh, but uh, there's an onslaught of people who want to get their license, and it's caught everyone by, by surprise. I told you in the last interview we did, I used to have a 48-hour guarantee. Phone us up, and you're in the car in 48 hours. I got a 48-day guarantee now. Wow. <laughs> That's how bad it is. Wow. And so, and we're telling people, get into the computer. And ICBC's made the unprecedented step of saying, okay, you know, they used to put three months of tests available in the, in the past, but now 
they're doing six months of tests. So some people are actually getting their runners and then uh, waiting. And then once the six months arrives, uh, right now they, they'd be booking into January and February uh, for a road test. And some are, are really unaware of what's going on. And they phone up and they'll say, gee, you know, can I, uh, I'm looking for a road test. Do you have any? <laughs> we don't have any road tests. We don't have a bunch of road tests we can sort of go poof and they magically appear. That's all ICBC's webpage and website, and so we have to book in the same way anyone else does. Uh, some people think that if they stay up to midnight, then certain times are released after that time, mm. and they've had some success doing that. But um, you just have to really comb through the, the process and see if you can get a cancellation or something that's not quite ready and or they've gone on holidays. We've had a few people go on holidays here for August, and uh, their times become available. But the the fact is that everyone's been caught flat-footed on this thing, and I've been in this business a long time, as you know, and I didn't see it coming. Okay, so you mentioned, okay, the, the midnight angle is interesting to me. So you mean that some people think that if you go, what, you go on your computer at mid, just a tick after midnight at the witching hour, they release a bunch of driving uh, road test dates, and then you can snap one up? Is that what people are doing? Uh, people are saying that that may work. Um, I think that what mm. happens with ICBC is that um, they have uh, holidays. So, you know, they, they're employees of ICBC. They're, they're you know, uh, deserving of holidays as well. So what they're doing is um, they will, once they uh, finalize their holiday schedule, then they would open other times. Um, so the problem now, though, is that they hired about 80 examiners province-wide, but because of the stress of the job, a number of the examiners didn't come back as far as COVID was concerned. So they're still in a bit of a deficit. And they used to do, an examiner could do nine tests uh, uh, a day, uh, you know, at 45 a week, uh, the regular class five tests that we're talking about. Uh, but the fact now is that because of COVID and, and disinfecting the cars and doing, they need more time to do that. So they do roughly six or seven tests as their daily routine now. And they may right. change that. I heard a rumor that they were changing it and they were going back to the nine because they didn't have to do as much disinfecting and so on. Um, and to try to hasten the process too. I mean, we try to disinfect all of our cars and, have them waiting there so when the examiner comes out we can say hey listen we've wiped it all down you're ready to go and they're not wasting any time what is the impact on people when they're forced to wait that long for a road test i mean i spoke to a young guy earlier this year who actually had to quit his job as a carpenter because he just could not afford to wait for months to get his a trucker's a truck a license to drive his truck so he actually cost him his job are you hearing any stories like that We've had uh, uh, two or three of them like that. Mostly people who have a job already, but they're looking for a promotion, and the promotion requires them to get a driver's license. And you'll have other people, too. You know, the kids' sports are starting up again, and school's going to be starting soon. And so, you know, if your kid's in soccer and you got to get that person, you know, the kid from one end of town to the other, you're not going to do it on your bicycle these days. Uh, and if it's a person's in hockey or whatever, those kinds of things, um, we're finding as never before, there's a lot of late twenties and early 30 somethings who said they'd never need a license. They'd never need a license. We're getting a whole bevy of those people, uh, phoning up and, and, and registering for, for driving courses. And the immigrant population, people are coming here from other countries too. Um, a lot of the licenses are not accepted. So if you're right. from certain countries where there's corruption in issuing of licenses, you're, t- you're going for a road test and you better be on top of things and get that 
done soon because uh, you, there could be a four to five, six month wait. What is the pass rate for a road test these days, Steve? Like, do most people pass first try? No, no. There's there's a, an amazingly high failure rate because BC's road test is the toughest in North America. You have really? to do a minimum of eight skill-related things as you go around. It's a 35-minute drive with a five-minute introduction and a five-minute debrief. So, I mean, compared to other jurisdictions, I mean, I, New Mexico, I think, is doing their tests in a parking lot or something. There's other places where the test is like 12 minutes long. I mean, Ohio fired half of their examiners during the 08 recession and just said, okay, the test isn't half an hour anymore. It's 12 minutes. Thanks. Goodbye. Uh, so wow. you know, the, there's a whole scenario of things that happen, but, but the BC test is by far uh, the most difficult, probably followed by the Ontario test. And then there are some jurisdictions in the States that still keep, take it quite seriously. Has it gotten, um, has it gotten tougher in BC? Over oh, the yeah. years, yeah, it's, yeah. it's it's much tougher. Through the '90s, yeah. there was a quantum change, and then in the 2000s, there was another quantum change. So, um, <clears throat> but the, the the result is that, like, there were fewer than 300 people killed in car crashes um, last year. I mean, so uh, when you take a look at the stats. Uh, some are saying because of COVID and so on, but the fact is that over the years, the the crash rate and the the, the death rate has been reduced by more than half. Wow. And so whatever they're doing uh, with seatbelts and airbags and other things in cars and so on, is is adding to the to the reduction in the number of deaths on the road. All right, welcome back to the show. Talking about the backlog for ICBC road tests in the province. Have been you been waiting to get a road test? Call me on the open line. Tell me what your test was like. Did you find the test difficult? 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Steve Wallace is my guest. Let's go to your calls. Mark in Kelowna. Hi, Mark. Taking my call. Sure. Uh, maybe an unrelated question or maybe related what why do we have interprovincial driving uh, licenses why don't we have uh, one license just like we have a passport for the country oh when the confederation was uh, completed uh, the uh, responsibility for these kinds of activities fell to the provinces so as a division of uh, uh, rules and regulations so it's in the constitution that we have uh, this is a provincial matter not a federal yeah, do you find that are are the road tests do they vary in difficulty and uh, from province to province, Steve? Yeah, there is a, a, a it's not a big big difference, but it is a significant difference uh if you were taking your test let's say uh, in the Yukon uh, would be quite different from taking it in New Brunswick. Let's go to Steve on the line in Delta. Hi Steve. Hi. Hi. Uh okay, now <laughs> After driving for 28 years without an accident or even a, even a speeding ticket, uh, because the doctor put some um, head injury, my license has been toast for the last nine and a half years, and they, I cannot get a road test unless and until I pass this bogus, and I mean bogus, functional driving evaluation, this neurological testing, which proves virtually nothing as far as road safety goes, nothing at all. And it's, that test has failed me three times, and one lawyer, word for he said it, it's a test designed to make people fit fail, and that's exactly what it is. Wow. Okay. So, uh, Steve. So, Steve, you um, you suffered a head injury, and they took your license away. Is that what happened? Basically, yes. 
Wow. Okay. I, I can I can really sympathize with you. I am totally opposed to those tests they're giving. It's called the Smart MD test. Um, I gave that test to my 14 instructors, and seven of them failed. The test is fallacious. It makes no sense whatsoever. And as far as I'm concerned, it's only the doctor that will actually tell you that you are fit to take the test uh, and you're fit to attempt to qualify. But uh, the superintendent of motor vehicles is right off base on this one. I've been arguing with that position for many, many years. This is not right. Well, who makes the call that you're required to get this test? Like if you've had a head injury like Steve here. Superintendent, it has nothing to do with ICBC. ICBC is just the testing agent. It's a superintendent of motor vehicles. Okay, that's interesting. Steve, I hope it uh, eventually works out for you there. Star 9898 is the number to call on your cell. Leslie and Burnaby, hi. Hi, I've got a question to ask. I learned to drive almost 58 years ago. When you're driving, we were told you cannot do a U-turn in the middle of the block. Now, I I live on a corner. I see all these schools going by teaching the young people to learn to drive. And they're making them do a U-turn in the middle of the block. The mm. stop sign was 15 feet behind them. In front of them is my driveway, about 20 feet. And then right after that, what, maybe another 7, 8 feet is the back lane. Okay, Steve, what's the rule on this? Uh, what they're doing is practicing for the test. Uh, the U-turn's on the test. The U-turn, three-point turn, or two-point turn. Now, you want to do it in a safe area. Most of the examiners are pretty sharp, and what they'll do is they'll do it at a cul-de-sac and count that as the U-turn. Uh, but you don't want to be having people do U-turns on dangerous roads, even though that it is legal to do. Uh, but the fact is it's on the road test. What is the most difficult skill you got to perform in the test? Uh, the, the most difficult, everyone thinks it's parallel parking. That isn't yeah. it. At the end of the test, you're going to have to back in between two other vehicles on the lot. And that generally uh, is the litmus test. And more people fail doing that than for any other reason that we teach. Uh, there are some nickel-dime things that happen, like some people don't come to a complete stop at that intersection. On a couple of occasions, they'll fail for that. If you go 34 in a 30, whether school or playground zone, that's a fail. But uh, the most difficult thing that people have to do is to back in between two vehicles at the end of the test, and that uh, results in most of the or, or most of the actual structural and, and car control okay. failures. Let's go to Christy on the open line in Vancouver. Hi, Christy. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, I think the test should be hard. I think it's a great idea. Um, you know, both my sons initially failed the test, and I took the younger one out to Abbotsford uh, to take his test where he finally passed. I mean, I also think, you know, why aren't they testing um, people's hearing in addition to their sight? I know so many older people who can't hear when, when you honk at them or when they're being honked at. And further, I mean... Driving is a privilege. It's not a right, you know. I think you yeah. need to earn it. Okay, test your hearing, Steve. What do you think of that? Um, they've uh, done studies, and I know this sounds odd, uh, but everyone should have their hearing tested, and hearing aid should be mandatory for people that have hearing impairment. The odd thing is deaf people have an exemplary low crash rate. <laughs> they, really? They're safer than the average population. Uh, and so that is a bit of a mystery, but that's a fact. Steve, thanks for coming on today. What's the website? It's wallacedrivingschool.com.